Whereas the first part of the Paul chapters in the book of Acts relate the account of his missionary journeys, Acts 22 through 28 relate the account of a personal journey within the heart of Paul, as he is accused of a crime he didn't commit and travels both symbolically and literally from Jerusalem to Rome. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. again to Gospel Doctrine, where we strive to present the information from the Come, Follow Me manual each week in the curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today's question comes from Peggy in Spanish Fork, and if you remember, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Acts chapter 15, where their interpretation of a couple of verses from Amos chapter 9 were instrumental in the apostles making a decision about how to treat Gentile converts. And the, the way that we have Amos chapter 9 is that the, the Lord will appeal to Edom and the Israelites will conquer Edom, which is a country to the southeast of, uh, of the land of Israel. And the New Testament interpretation was that the, uh, the children of men, in other words, Adam, so this, this interplay between Edom and Adam, and that's in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So Peggy's question is about uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 13, the verse that immediately follows. And she says the verse was at first confusing, but she wonders if it's a different expression of the, the idea that the last shall be first. Wonderful question, Peggy. And I'll read you what we have in the King James Version. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. So the, the idea is in this verse is not that the first shall become the last, but that the, the people who are coming afterward to plow, uh, overtaking the reaper, means there's so much bounty coming out of the earth that the, the, the work of men will be inadequate to to keep up with it. And the wine is symbolic of something that is wonderful that comes out of the earth that through which man's uh, agency would be powerless to produce. It's God's agency that produces grapes that give men wine. And so when it says the mountain, the hills shall melt, what that actually means is that the, there will be so much juice running off of all these grapes that people are powerless to to stop from growing so fast they can't even harvest them is that the instead of running with water down the down the rivers that run with wine with grape juice so the idea is that one day the earth will change in the way that it supports man and the the sig the symbol of that or the signal of that will be how the gospel is preached so as we talked about a couple of weeks ago as the gospel goes forth unto the gentiles in other words, as um, all of Adam, all of mankind, begins to care about the worship of Jehovah, then we are approaching those days. And those days began immediately after Jesus Christ. You see the, the fruit that these missionary journeys of Paul and other apostles were able to garner. If you look around the world today, uh, the fact that this, this small 
sect of followers of Jesus in a tiny country was able to completely affect the world uh, began during their time and began in large part because of the efforts of people like Paul and Paul specifically. And so what he's saying is the you can't predict the results, the fruits of your labors. There will be far beyond anything you could imagine. And this verse will have another fulfillment or it will become, it will have an accelerated fulfillment at the time of the second coming. Wonderful question, Peggy. Thank you. If you should care to ask a question, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And as always, we appreciate your shares on social media, your five-star reviews on iTunes and SoundCloud. They do help us to find more listeners. And I'm constantly touched when I hear that a new listener has heard about the podcast from someone else who's enjoyed it. So welcome if you're new. So Acts chapter 22 through 28 is the story of Paul's final imprisonment in the book of Acts. Not final imprisonment of his life, but that we, that we have a scriptural account of. And this story sort of begins, it's a continuation of the story of Acts chapter 21. If you remember, uh, Acts 21 ends with a comma. And Paul opens his mouth to talk to this mob who wants to kill him. And it says, Paul spoke to them saying, comma, and then the end of the chapter left us with a real cliffhanger. So here we are in chapter two, hearing what Paul will say. So I want to jump back a little bit and give you some background of, um, it's kind of like the old serial movies from when my dad was a kid, when, uh, if you remember last time, our heroes were in trouble. And so here, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background. Um, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And all of these people were warning him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, go, don't go to Jerusalem. And to the, to the extent that there was one man named Agabus who came from, uh, from Jerusalem to Philippi, and he took Paul's belt and he bound his hands and feet with it and said, uh, Paul, his own hands and feet with it and said, the owner of this belt will be similarly bound if, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul. And as I said at the time, uh, I wish I had more time to to talk about all the ways in which clothing symbolism is used spiritually in the scriptures, uh, a lar- in large part in the Old Testament, but continued in the Book of Mormon. And this is one example that I taught about this, uh, and I can't remember exactly which lesson, last year during the Old Testament. And uh, so if you're, if, for extra credit, if you ha- remember which lesson that was in, you can email me. But I wish I had more time to go into it. But this is a very Hebrew way to get across a message. And Paul has made his choice. And so when he ends up in Jerusalem, they see him in the temple. And the Jews see him in the temple, and they think he's profaned the temple. The Jews are about, they, they raise a mob, and they're about to kill Paul, uh, just right, right in the middle of the city. The Roman soldiers hear about it, come out and rescue him. And as they're carrying him into what we can presume, it's called the castle, but we can presume it's the Antonia Fortress, then Paul asks the leader of the men carrying him up there, he, he asks in Greek, can I address the crowd? And the soldier is surprised to hear him talking to him in Greek. He had thought that Paul was this well-known Egyptian terrorist who had been uh, leading armed men into the wilderness to, to basically train them to as in insurrection. And so uh, because he is surprised by this, he allows Paul to speak. And then Paul turns and speaks to the crowd in Hebrew, and they're surprised by that, and so they let him speak. And then chapter 22, the beginning of our lesson, is what Paul begins to say. Now, Paul begins in a very interesting way. He says, men, brethren, and fathers. And if you recall, this is 
the way in, that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen began his address, his defense to the Sanhedrin. And I believe that Paul, whether consciously or unconsciously, and Luke, definitely consciously, Paul was trying to tie himself to Stephen. And as he talks, he says, uh, he begin, first of all, Paul begins the way that Stephen began, but then he also describes himself as zealous toward God. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and then he talks about the, how his zeal led him to condemn Stephen, or at least be complicit in the death, the murder of Stephen, and hold the clothes of those who did. So Paul puts himself in the position of a zealot toward God. And then he, he mentions that he notices the crowd, you're zealous like I was. So he puts himself in the place of Stephen, puts the crowd watching him in the place of where he was. And in my personal view, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, Paul wants to show them the journey that he's gone through. And he really does think that this will help. But I think even more so, he wants to publicly repent for the way that he once publicly persecuted the Christians. And this is the beginning of Paul's journey, in my opinion. So Paul goes on um, a physical journey, as we'll discover, from Jerusalem to Rome. But he also goes on this journey of trying to make peace with his past, of once being a persecutor of Christians and now being a well-known apostle. And, and this is why, again, in my opinion, as he's traveling south from, from visiting all of these places in Greece and in Asia Minor, he's traveling towards Jerusalem for his final trip there, and he's resisting all of these calls for him to not make the journey. But he knows he really wants to because personally he needs to go back to Jerusalem and face what he's done to the Christians. And here he is taking on the role of Stephen and basically saying that I'm willing to be, I'm willing to face the same fate. I'm willing to put myself in the same position that Stephen was. And I recognize that he was so vulnerable before this, this crowd of men who hated him and wanted to kill him. And yet he had the courage to testify of Christ. And this is Paul way of, Paul's way of stepping forward and saying, I've now come full circle. I'm no longer willing to protect myself at the expense of the truth. I'm willing to stand in front of you all here and claim and proudly admit my, my dependence on God and my faith in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about his, his conversion story. So he talks about how he persecuted Stephen as if he thinks um, well, let, let, me, let me back up. He talks about how the, the light appears to him and strikes him blind, and then he's healed, and, and then he begins to preach of Christ. Then he returns to Jerusalem and sees Christ in the temple, or sees God in the temple. To him, they're one and the same thing. To the crowd, Christ and God, not the same thing. But he sees God in the temple, and God tells him to leave Jerusalem. He won't be accepted there. And he says, but, but God, but Lord... Don't you realize that I was once like them, that I once persecuted the saints as well? So, so Peter telling the crowd this, he obviously thinks this will have an effect over them. Basically what he's saying is, it must have taken, can't you all see that it must have taken a real miracle for me to change? I was so zealous and I want you all to hear what this miracle was. You know, can't you give some credence to this? Now, what Paul's forgetting is how close-minded he once was as well. It took a literal manifestation from God for him to change his heart. And it's when Paul, so then uh, Christ continues his vision to Paul in the temple and says, Paul, now you're going to go to the Gentiles. And when Paul says that word, 
the entire crowd stops listening, and with one accord, they it says they rend their clothes. But it may mean it, rending, a, rending one's clothes, again, this is uh, clothing imagery from the Old Testament, it could mean extreme anger and offense toward God, but it could also mean that they've taken off their clothes in the way that the Sanhedrin took off their clothes and left them with Paul when they were about to stone Stephen. and Or it could be both. And I think this viewpoint is supported by the idea that they fling dust in the air. So they don't have access to stones where they are. There are no stones in this courtyard, uh, probably on purpose, because the Roman soldiers don't want people walking around to be able to throw rocks at them. So they removed all stones from this courtyard. So the only thing they can throw at Paul is dust from the ground, but they pick up and showing their willingness if they'd had stones to kill him on the spot. And the reason for that is Paul is not, he, he has just told them that he has had a vision from God that they have been rejected and that they that he is to take everything that was precious to them and to share it with those people that they have kept themselves above by, by following God's commandments for thousands of years. This was the ultimate rejection, or Paul's expression of the ultimate rejection of Israel. From their perspective, this is how they would have received it. It made them so angry they were willing to kill. So here's another interesting motif that is brought up again and again in this lesson, and that is that Paul is saved. This is, this is the second time. First time they saved him from the mob, and then uh, he's on the st- he's on the ramp or the steps leading up into the castle, and they save him again. They carry him inside. Now the commander wants to know the truth of what's going on, so he's about to have Paul beaten, and apparently this was pretty standard stuff. But Paul says, "Hey, is this normal for you to beat a Roman citizen without a trial?" And the the soldier who's about to perform this punishment or this scourging uh, is a little bit scared, so he goes and talks to the commander, and the commander comes and says to Paul, wait, are you a Roman citizen? I paid a lot for that honor. And Paul says, I was born with this honor. So now we have uh, also another theme that Luke is bringing in, which is the, the, not the dual, but the triple identity of Paul. He's a Christian, he's a Jew, and he's a Roman. So he's a powerful, powerful Christian. He's a traveling apostle. He has visions of Christ. He is also, his bona fides as a Jew are extremely powerful. He was brought up as a Pharisee, very strict in observance to the law, taught by Gamaliel, as I've said it, as some of you have corrected me, Gamaliel, I don't know the real pronunciation, but taught by this very prominent Jewish rabbi who is a voice of restraint, even even mentioned earlier in, I believe, chapter 5 of the book of Acts. So Paul has a prominent Jewish teacher. He has a very uh, strict and orthodox Jewish upbringing, and so he's very much a prominent Jew. He, he had been given authority to persecute the Christians, meaning they trusted his zeal toward God. Finally, now we see that Paul is, when, when he says to someone, uh, I'm a Roman citizen, they give him deference. And not only that, but they, he's born as a Roman citizen. He's even, he has a, a status even above the soldier who's about to beat him. What we also see is that Paul is in the exact same, well, possibly in the exact same place where Christ was beaten. Christ suffered this same penalty that Paul was about to suffer. And it, it is possible that Pilate, when he ordered Jesus to be whipped, was in the Antonia Fortress. It's also possible he was in his own palace, uh, closer to Mount Zion, near where 
um, the the upper room was. But so one of those two places are the candidates for where Jesus would have been scourged. And if it's true that Jesus was scourged in the Antonia fortress, then Paul being scourged in the same place is a parallel. Now Paul now Paul has been tied just in a few brief verses both to Stephen and to Jesus, martyrs, for the truth. So Paul uh, appeals to this uh, commander's authority, and the commander removes that penalty from him, but, but does take him the next day before the Sanhedrin. Again, Peter and John have appeared before the Sanhedrin and been accused of similar things, and so has Jesus, obviously. In this case, Paul comes in right away, and he says, I'm, in, I'm innocent of all wrongdoing, and he's struck on command of the high priest in the face. And he says to the high priest, God will smite you because thou whited wall, and this means somebody who looks good on the outside, but you've covered up a multiple, m- multitude of sins with your, with your facade. God will smite you because you're, you're sitting there uh, judging me according to the law, but you, you've just commanded me to be struck, and that is against the law. Now, this is a curse. This is a form of curse. God will smite you, right, because of what you've just done. And so the, the other members of the council, they say, are, are you going to speak that way to the high priest? And Paul immediately repents. And this shows a couple of things. One, Paul is truly an observant Jew because, he number one, he knows the scripture so well. He quotes this, this scripture from uh, Exodus twenty two twenty eight exactly. He has memorized, probably Paul has memorized, the entire Torah. And this is just the way that observant Jews did it, especially someone taught uh, in the way that Paul has been instructed. He has likely committed large tracts, if not the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, to memory, which seems really incredible to us today, but back then was fairly commonplace. He couldn't be carrying around. These were scrolls, right? The book of Isaiah was an Isaiah scroll, a large scroll. And of course, the Torah was a huge scroll. To carry those around on his journeys would have been impracticable. And so for Paul to carry them around meant he had to memorize them. And this is the way that people did it. They memorized it when they were taught. And it took years, and they were willing to put in those years and commit the scriptures to memory. So Paul displays, first of all, that he understands the scriptures that well, that when they rebuke him for talking that way to the high priest, he knows the scripture that they're talking about. And he, and he immediately humbles himself. So that's the second thing, is that, number one, Paul humbles himself when, he, when he's, it's pointed out to him that he's acting counter to the Jewish Torah, the law. Secondly, that he recognizes the high priest as the ruler of his people. So they say to him, speakest thou thus to the ruler of thy, or to the high priest? And he says, I did not know he was the high priest. For it is written, thou shalt not curse the ruler of thy people. So number one, Paul knows the scripture. Number two, he sees the high priest as the ruler of his people. Not Felix, who is the Roman procurator or governor, and not Agrippa II, who is the king that has taken the place of Herod. He doesn't see either of those men as the ruler of his people. He sees the man who, rightly or not, has been put in the place of high priest. And therefore, Paul is not just outwardly, but inwardly an observant Jew. As you recall, last week we learned, we learned that the reason that Paul was performing this devotion, this vow in the temple, was to show the Jews that he was still observant in Judaism, in the law of Moses. And so he didn't just want to show it. Now we're, we're, now we're seeing that it's really true all the way down. Paul is a deeply observant Jew. 
And before he can even begin his story, he sees that there's this division, or begin his trial in front of the Sanhedrin. He sees that there's this, this division between Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul says, I am a proud Pharisee. I believe it is for preaching the very gospel that we believe in, brethren, Pharisees. It is for preaching this very gospel of resurrection from the dead that I am brought here today. And this is an expert way of threading through the difficulty in which he finds himself, because this, this council may have come to some resolution. They may have been able to unite themselves that he was deserving of death, based on the way that he'd been preaching to the Gentiles, for example. But instead, he finds the division among his enemies, and it, it becomes clear in just a few minutes, in a few verses, that uh, this was God's will that he do this. But he he decries, he denounces the doctrine of the Sadducees and says that I, it, is, it is because of my beliefs as a Pharisee, not as a Christian, but as a Pharisee in the, in the resurrection of the dead that I'm brought here before you today. And immediately the Pharisees leap to his defense. They can see that this is partially true, at least, and, and some of them probably believe that it's the whole truth. And they say, oh, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. You know, maybe it is, maybe he really did see an angel. And so the, the Sadducees don't believe in angels and spirits or in resurrection from the dead, and the Pharisees believe in all three. And so Paul causes this such a division that, again, for the second time in just a couple of chapters, there's a mob that wants to kill him. This time, right in the middle of the Sanhedrin council chamber, they want to violently grab hold of him. So he has defenders and he has attackers right in the same room. Luckily, he also has, again, Roman soldiers who come to his defense the third time in this lesson that he has been saved by the power of Rome. They take him back to the fortress, and then presumably some Sadducees, it doesn't say, leaders of the Jews, they get together, and at least 40 and more of these men, they make a vow, we will not eat. It's a solemn vow. It's a pledge before God. We will not eat until we have shed the blood and taken the life of Paul. Now, if you if this smacks, if this is familiar to you, if this smacks of the, the very uh, secret combinations that are so common towards the end of the Book of Mormon, then it should, because they have made a pledge to keep, A, keep it secret, and B, commit murder, and C, for their own gain. So, um, very similar to what Joseph Smith described among the Nephites, as, as, their, as the, their society was crumbling and reaching its most wicked state. And so this is very descriptive of the, what we've talked about many times, that the beast was now ruling and trampling in Jerusalem, rather than the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, as we read in Daniel chapter 7. So Paul is spirited away from there, and then he learns, fortunately, his nephew was somehow connected to this plot and learned of it and brought news to Paul in prison and said, they're planning to kill you. When you go back to the council chamber of the Sanhedrin, then 40 men, it doesn't matter if you have a guard of five people, 40 men are going to come out and they are going to kill you. So Paul says, go tell the commander this. He tells the commander, and the commander uh, immediately places Paul under heavy guard and sends him to Caesarea, away from Jerusalem and the powers that would kill him. And we don't have any further word. Um, the, the question that occurred to me first was, what happens to these men who have made this pledge? Did they starve to death, or did they go back on their word? Either way, that didn't turn out well for them. But that, 
That story isn't finished. Paul is sent to Caesarea, which is the seat of the governor Felix. And there, Felix invites these leaders of the Jews to come and examine Paul so that Paul can be put on now a trial according to his rights as a Roman citizen. So he gets a chance to face his accusers. And before we relate that story, I just want to, I want to highlight something that happened while Paul is still in Jerusalem. Uh, that It says that Christ stood by him and told him to be of good cheer. So this is in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And that is almost, it's almost a throwaway verse. It happens so quickly that we can skip over it. But imagine what it must have felt like for Christ himself to appear to Paul and to comfort him. Uh, If you've ever felt the Holy Ghost, you know that it's a feeling of extreme love and peace where difficulties, earthly difficulties, seem to fade. If you can imagine the how much that feeling must have been multiplied by having the the personal presence of Christ in his prison cell with him, then not only that, but the message, Christ's message is, be of good cheer. And he doesn't say to Paul, here's a plan, Paul, for how you're going to get out of trouble. He doesn't, he doesn't give Paul a strategy to deal with his troubles. The strategy is his attitude. That, to me, that's so profound that Paul is told by Christ to be of good cheer, and he's going to need it. This is the beginning of what, for Paul, will be at least five years and perhaps more of unjust imprisonment. He's going to spend two years in Caesarea, one year uh, as a prisoner on a boat, and then two years again in Rome, but all of it imprisoned. And as we, as we saw, he didn't really do anything. He was in the temple, and the reason he was arrested is because a mob was about to kill him. So he was arrested and about to be whipped because this mob was angry at him, and the, the soldiers wanted to find out what was going on, and they were going to whip him to find out. And then they were willing to imprison him just to find out what he did. So Christ could have told Paul, look, you're going to spend some time in jail and then you're going to get out. You're going, all this stuff is going to turn out okay. He didn't say any of that. He just said to Paul, be of good cheer. You, and, he, and he instructs him, you know, you've, you've borne testimony in Jerusalem. You're going to bear testimony in Rome. And this is actually um, the beginning of the fulfillment of one of the promises that was made to Paul in his conversion experience, he was told that he was going to bear witnesses, bear witness before kings. And here he is about to talk to a Roman governor and then later to King Agrippa II and then go all the way. He's, he's appealed all the way to Caesar. So that is a prophecy already being fulfilled a few short years later. But also that the fact that Jesus tells him, Paul, it is your attitude that I'm, that I'm now here to influence, nothing else. I'm not here to change your circumstances. And speaking of circumstances, Paul has already likened himself, or at least Luke has likened Paul, to Stephen. And I think it's profitable for us to contrast Paul's circumstances with those of Stephen. Stephen was faithful in the testimony of Christ and in the works of Christ, and was immediately taken and judged and executed. Whereas Paul has been made to suffer and has traveled, has, has endured both suffering and great success, has, has met with sorrows and with joys, with, uh, with failure and with many converts. So 
uh, one, of, one lesson that we can take from that is that it isn't our circumstances. So often we use circumstances to determine how God must feel about us. If God really loved me, how could he let this happen? That is a very, very common human attitude. But if you look at Paul and Stephen, they were equally faithful, at least after Paul's conversion, equally faithful in serving God. And God was equally happy with, and their works were equally acceptable to God and to Christ. And they both had the same experience. Stephen looked up and saw God and Christ in heaven above him that when he was being mistreated. And here Paul is in prison, having Christ stand beside him and say, be of good cheer. And so their external circumstances were different. The path they took to get to obedience was different. And it, the lesson seems to me to be, if we read into circumstances, number one, things aren't going to be easy for us just because we're following Christ. In fact, it, it, may, be, it may well be the opposite. Secondly, if we read into circumstances to look for a, some sort of signal as to how pleased God is with us, we can mislead ourselves. Because here are two apostles and prophets of God that have terrible circumstances, and yet God has instructed Paul in this particular case to be of good cheer. And how, how comforting that message must have been, how difficult it must have been in the years to come for Paul to recall that earlier vision that he'd had where Christ was instructing him be of good cheer. It must have felt empty as the long years separated him from that experience, and yet Christ cared enough about Paul to personally appear and extend that invitation. And it was doubtless one of the most powerful experiences of Paul's life. Now, Paul is in Caesarea awaiting trial. And the, the Jewish leaders travel from Jerusalem to Caesarea to, to put Paul on trial. And as, as has happened with Paul before, uh, Jewish leaders, basically, the, the number one, they tried to convince the Roman authority that Paul is guilty of sedition, of attempting to undermine Roman government but they don't have any proof of that. Secondly, they bring a charge that Paul is, has blasphemed or that he has disrespected their religion, he hasn't followed their law. And uh, Felix is not sensitive to that concern, so he doesn't find any evidence that Paul has been stirring up any rebellious activity against Rome, and he also doesn't care that the Jews aren't happy about what Paul believes. And so there's really nothing to be done. However, Felix also wants a bribe from Paul, and he doesn't want to upset these men who are very powerful in the country that he has to rule somehow. He has to keep order. So he can't just set Paul free, that is, without some sort of acknowledgement, some financial acknowledgement from Paul that this would be very inconvenient for him. So he's waiting for a bribe from Paul, or he's waiting for something to happen, and Paul languishes in jail for two years in Caesarea. Now, his, his conditions are not miserable, and people can come unto him and visit him, and we can presume this is when Luke comes to him and learns what's been going on and perhaps hears about his vision in the jail in order to record that for us here in the book of Acts. So by this time, we're in chapter 24, uh, which is this trial. And in verse 14, uh, just to draw your attention a couple more verses, in verse 14 and in verse 22, Christianity, the following of Christ, is again referred to as the way or that way. So because it's not capitalized in the King James Version, 
we don't we're not often aware that the early Christians had a name for their beliefs and it was the way or the path. And I think it's it's kind of fun to realize that that I've I've at least been ignorant of that until uh, just this year. And so it's it's fun for me to discover that they were all very familiar with talking about their beliefs using this term. So again, at the end of this trial, the Roman authority, Felix, he doesn't, from the Jewish leader's perspective, he denies them justice. But from Paul's perspective, he protects him. And so Paul has been protected by being uh, escorted under heavy guard from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And now he's protected again at the end of this trial, again and again by Roman authority. So what is my point in all of this is, is to say that Luke, whether, it's, whether this is deliberate or not, I'm, there are times when I really feel like it has to be deliberate on the part of Luke to, to do the things that it seem, he seems to be doing. But this is one where I'm not sure. So again and again, Paul is rescued by Roman authority. And the implication or the, one of the conclusions that I draw as I read this is that Romans reading the book of Acts in the years to come uh, would obviously identify with those Roman characters in the story. And they would say, oh man, if I were in that position, I don't know how I would react to these, uh, and, and especially if these Romans have yet to be converted, right? They're, non, they're non-Christian Romans. They would say, how would I react if I was confronted with these Christians, you know, spouting their, their beliefs that seem irrational, and what would I do? They're going to identify with the Roman characters. And what Paul has, or what Luke has the Roman characters doing, is protecting Christians. And Luke is giving them a mold to fit into if they choose. He's showing them what it feels like to protect Christians. You get to be the good guys of this story. You get to show your justice, your your equity, and the righteousness of your rule by the way you treat Christians. In this case, against Jewish accusers, but it doesn't. The, the identity of the accusers doesn't matter as much as the identity of the accused. Paul and other Christians are protected in the book of Acts several times by Roman authority. And the, the point is that I believe this is another way in which Luke strengthened his call for religious liberty. And this became a reality within the decades that followed whether it was because they read the book of Acts or because the attitudes in the book of Acts began to permeate society in other ways. But this was a call for religious liberty, and it eventually proved very effective. I I think it's amazing to see the power of ideas and the power of literature to transform society. It's philosophy that brings about change. It's politics that implements it. So Luke was not a politician. He was a philosopher, and he was a biographer, really. And yet, his works have changed history. They've changed the Roman Empire. Uh, and, and it wasn't just Luke, but Luke is here having a profound influence. If we look at history, we can see him having a profound influence on the way things turned out. Now, that may have been deliberate, and it may not. In some cases, the effects of Luke's writings were certainly deliberate. In this case, perhaps as well. So Paul sits in jail for two years, and at least two years, And then a new Roman governor is appointed. Festus takes the place of Felix. And one of of Festus's first acts is to travel to Jerusalem to get to know his subjects. And the Jewish leaders remind him that he has a man in his prison that they don't like. They tell him all about Paul. So he goes back and talks to Paul. And whether Festus knows or not isn't 
exactly clear at the beginning of chapter 25, the Jewish leaders have again hatched a conspiracy against Paul. If he travels to Jerusalem, they, were, they will overwhelm him, the soldiers, whatever small contingent of soldiers protect him, and they will kill Paul. And they may have told Festus about this plan, they may not have, but in any case, he goes back to Caesarea and tries to get Paul to agree to be tried in Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to take you back and try you in front of these Jewish leaders, but he does say, I want to do your trial in Jerusalem. And Paul says, now, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen in front of Roman authority in a Roman province. Why would I be taken to be tried anywhere else? I demand my rights and I appeal to Caesar. Now, this is within his right. Whether or not Felix was complicit in this conspiracy, Paul has just saved his own life by again appealing to Roman authority. So this, this idea that Romans are protecting Christians is being driven home again and again and again by Luke. And the reason that I mentioned that, that Paul has saved his own life by, not, by appealing to Rome uh, is for a reason, because um, that idea will be called into question here in just a few minutes. So uh, some time passes, and then King Agrippa, the sec- in this case the second, now, another King Agrippa was mentioned earlier, who put James to death, and then was punished by God and died soon after. This is his son. And Agrippa shows up with Bernice, or Berenice, who is, uh, we find out elsewhere, in the, book, in the works of Josephus and other places, this is his sister. And they come to salute Festus, because he's a new governor. And Festus says, you know, listen, Agrippa, I've got an interesting problem. You'll know something about it, because it's, it's a Jew like you. Uh, this man is in my prison and here's what's been going on. And so Agrippa says, oh, I'd be interested in, in knowing Paul's story. So then Paul has a third opportunity to present his case. And he, again, in front of this time in front of King Agrippa, the nobles that are there in Caesarea, anyone who's important shows up. So this is a very public trial this time if it hadn't been before. And for the third time in the book of Acts, and the second time in this lesson, once in chapter 22 in front of the crowd on the steps of the Antonia Fortress, and now again in front of King Agrippa, Paul relates his conversion story. And this is the third account. The first account was given by Luke. And so the, the different audiences are these. First was from Paul to whoever he told it to, presumably to Luke and others, to Christians, and not only Christians, but Christian missionaries. So one one audience got that account, and that's the account that we read in chapter 9. Then in chapter 22, it's in front of a bunch of, as Paul described them, zealous Jews, and he tells that account and includes certain details. And now it's in front of a Hebrew king, and uh, but a, a, a Hebrew king in some, at least in some state of apostasy, a Roman governor, and Roman authority, and in a courtroom. And Paul chooses to emphasize different aspects of his story in each of his accounts. And Luke chooses to include those emphases according to his priorities. And I've made this parallel before, and this is, um, this, I'm not the, by any means the first person to notice this. In fa- but there are a lot of similarities between the way Paul relates the account of his theophany or his vision and the way Joseph Smith talked about his theophany, his first vision. 
And Joseph Smith, in fact, even likened himself in the Pearl of Great Price, he likened himself to Paul. So many people wanted Paul to recant, but he'd truly seen that light, Joseph Smith said. And, and similarly, I was, everyone tried to get me to deny what I'd seen, but I, I wasn't trying to, to make them do anything. I was just telling the truth. And so Paul was trying to tell the truth about Christ. And that's what, that's what Joseph Smith was trying to do. Uh, parallels not just between the way that their visions were preserved, but between their experiences personally around seeing God. Now, something happened, something interesting happens at the end of this uh, vision, and that is that Agrippa says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The way I read that, and the way I think most people read that, is that, that Paul had pricked him in his heart, and he had felt the Spirit, and he felt like, oh, you know, I really want to believe what you're believing, but it's just too hard for me right now. That's what it would mean today for someone to say, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Uh, but we have some evidence that this isn't what Agrippa meant. First of all, the translation is, if a literal translation is the word almost. But uh, a better translation, a more idiomatic translation might be with so little or in so little time. And the other thing is uh, the, the Greek works were not punctuated in the same way that we would think about punctuation. And so most modern translations include a question mark at the end of this. So a better way of looking at this statement would be for Agrippa to say, Paul, do you think in so little time, so this, this little difference between uh, what Paul had hoped to accomplish and what he actually accomplished was the idea that is expressed in the word almost. But a better way to express it is, in so little time, did you think you could convince me to be a Christian? In other words, I'm a, I am a proud Jew. Uh, this is the public stance of Agrippa, even though uh, his faithfulness, I'll, I'll talk a bit, little bit about that in a second. I'm a proud Jew. I'm not going to be converted in so little time. So this is actually mockery. Again, the word Christian, we talked about what that might mean. Uh, it is a bond slave or a servant, someone owned by the Messiah. And what he's saying is, you're, you're owned by the Messiah, but I am loyal to Rome, is basically what Agrippa is saying. I'm a subject of Caesar. So by, by pointing out this pejor- what was then a pejorative title of Paul as a Christian, uh, Agrippa is drawing a contrast between himself and Paul and saying, uh, did you think you could convince me to be owned by your Messiah in so short a time? And Paul's response is to say, well, I don't care how long it takes, whether it takes a little bit of time or whether it takes a lot. That's another way of translating when he says, um, I would that all men would be both almost and all the way. Uh, Not only would be a Christian would believe uh, the way that I believe, would, would understand what I understand, would have the blessings that I have. And, uh, the way that we have that translated is I would that all men would be both almost and totally convinced of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is actually saying is, I don't care how long it takes, whether it takes a little time or a long time, I, would, I wish that everyone could come to believe in Jesus Christ. And he's, uh, he's referring here specifically to his own conversion, how it took so short a time. He recognizes that he was extremely blessed in having that quick conversion. And he's saying, whether it's the way that I was converted or whether it needs to take more time in your own life, I hope that Christ can, can show himself in your life and change your heart. Except that I don't, I don't wish on you that you are uh, bound for your beliefs the way that I have been. 
So a mocking, a mocking uh, taunt by, by Agrippa II and then a charitable reply by Paul is the way this should really be interpreted, in my opinion. And then Festus declares of Paul, uh, you must be mad. He, he can't believe that Paul would claim to have received this vision of God. And Paul says, I'm not, I'm not mad. This is, this is sober testimony. I really mean what I'm saying. And there is no proof of any wrongdoing that I've done. Now, Agrippa makes an interesting comment at the end. He says, if this man had not appealed to Caesar, then he might have been let free. But because he's appealed to Caesar, he's got to go have a trial before Caesar. Now, the fact that it's Agrippa making this comment doesn't mean that it's true. If Festus had said it, then we, w- we would put more stock in it. But he, uh, if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, the truth is Agrippa doesn't know. If Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, he'd be dead by now. So we shouldn't read that and think, oh yeah, too bad Paul appealed to Caesar. No, it was really necessary for Paul to appeal to Caesar, and it saved his life. So he finds himself in this position of needing now to be tried before Caesar. It didn't, this wasn't really a trial before Agrippa. It was just um, a, to satisfy Agrippa's curiosity and to make a greater bond between Agrippa II and Festus, who was now the Roman governor. Incidentally, Josephus repeats the common gossip of that time, which was that uh, Agrippa II and his sister Bernice were, were living together as husband and wife, and she was accompanying him because she was, in fact, his wife and not just his sister. And this was counter, obviously, to Jewish law. So Agrippa, though uh, Paul flatters him as being someone who knows well the law and is familiar with Jewish customs, um, Agrippa was very much in a state of apostasy as regards the law of Moses. Secondly, in just a few short years, there would be an insurrection of Jews uprising against the power of Rome. And in that conflict, Agrippa II would take the side of Rome against the Jews and violently uh, seek to kill Jews who were opposing Rome. So his, his loyalties were not toward the people of God, the, the covenant of God, it was very much towards his own power and his own pleasure and his own influence in the region. So Agrippa was not almost convinced to be a Christian. He was very much in a state of rebellion toward God. Now it's time for Paul to be finally sent to Rome. And he's put on a ship. And the ship, uh, it says that after the fast, and we could presume it's the, the, the Day of Atonement, which comes in the fall, uh, it says they, they were worried about the winter coming because it was after the fast. So um, Paul prophesies and says, even though we're not in a great place to, to spend the winter on this ship, if we keep trying to go further, it's going to get even worse for us, so we should stay here. <clears throat> they don't listen to him, of course, and what should happen, but his prophecy comes true. They they are faced with a storm so severe that they're driven before it. They don't see the sun for several days and nights. And then Paul makes another prophecy. The, the sailors all try to get in a little boat, and what they say is they, they can sound the water with a weight and rope, and they can see that it's getting shallower. And the sailors all try to get in this little boat, and they claim, oh, we're going to go help the boat be anchored better. And Paul says, if you let the sailors go, we're all going to die because they're trying to desert. So the Roman soldiers cut the lines to the lifeboat and keep the sailors on board. And that saves everyone's life. And then uh, 
then the the boat washes up on a sandbar or on something that is off offshore a little bit, and they all have to swim for it. And the Roman soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners because the danger was that they'd swim away and get away from justice. But because the centurion felt like Paul had saved their lives, he kept all the prisoners alive. So Paul's predictions not only saved everyone on the ship from, from death by shipwreck, from these sailors leaving, but now he, his, his faithfulness has saved all the prisoners from death by execution. They all wind up on shore, and this is the Isle of Malta, and they're called barbarians because they're, not, they're ethnically different. Even though they're under the authority of Rome, they're ethnically different from Rome. And the natives, the, the dwellers in Malta, they, they shelter them, and they build them a fire, and immediately Paul's hand, as he's, as he's bending over the fire, is bitten by a snake. And the, the Maltese say to Paul, you, you thought you'd gotten free from your fate of, of death by shipwreck, but fate hates you because you must have been a murderer because now it's come and killed you because this is a poisonous snake hanging on your hand. But then they watch Paul, and he doesn't swell up, and he doesn't die, and then they want to worship him as a god, and Paul won't have any of it. And he also heals all of the sick on the island. So Paul has now, because of his faithfulness in, in prophesying and in being willing to stand before all kinds of different authorities, and because of his triple identity as Christian, as Jew, as Roman, has now been put in this position to help everyone on the island and to, to raise them up from one, from one state, from a state of sickness to a state of health. Uh, this is why I called this a personal journey, because first, Paul is caused to come to the place where he was in the most danger and then put himself in the position of Stephen, a man in whose death he was complicit. And then he was forced to wait when he was not accustomed to waiting. He was accustomed to journeying and preaching, and now he's sitting. And he's forced to change his attitude by a, a personal appearance of Jesus Christ. And now he, this begins to bear fruit, and Paul is raising everyone from all of the sick of the island of Malta, and he spends the winter there, and finally in the spring arrives in Rome and immediately convenes a meeting of the Jewish leaders there. Now, the, the epistle to the Romans, Paul has written, most people think, from Corinth years earlier. So we've, we've talked about Paul's visit to Corinth, where, we stayed, where he stayed with the tent makers and earned his keep there. And from the references in the epistle to the Romans, it's believed that that's when he wrote this. So there would have already been a Christian community thriving in Rome. At some point, Jews had been expelled from Rome. Now they were allowed back in. They would, they would later again be expelled. So this, this is, highlights a crucial difference between some Christian converts and others. Some of them, if they were converted from Judaism, they were expelled from Rome specifically and from Italy in general during a couple of different times in the first century. And the Christian or the, the Gentile converts to Christianity were not so expelled. And so even though they would not have chosen perhaps to have a division between themselves, the Romans created this division between them. Uh, and we'll talk about the way that Paul addressed that when we read uh, both the the epistle to the Corinthians and the epistle to the Romans. But these Romans would have known Paul. It was Paul's long-standing ambition to go there one day and preach to them. And that is presumably why he wrote them a letter before he ever set foot in Rome is because he knew 
that God had prophesied that he'd been given this promise that he would bear witness before kings and in high places and here and here he finally is in Rome so he's talking to the Jewish leaders and then later later he convenes a meeting at his house and they tell him nobody has sent us a letter about you coming here about your trial no no Jewish leaders have traveled here to bear witness against you and the the legal matter of Paul's appeal to Caesar is sort of dropped at that point there's no accusers now so there's really nothing for Paul to be tried for. Uh, we can assume that the, that all of this furor that has erupted in Jerusalem now will sort of die out. And uh, Luke doesn't say that explicitly. What Luke does say is that Paul spends two years under house arrest receiving anyone who wanted to come to him. And some of these Jewish people that come to him are converted and some are not. And then they dispute, again, as, as has happened with Paul Everywhere he's gone, they dispute between each other. What are we going to believe? Well, tradition tells us that Paul was eventually freed. And he wanted to journey even farther west to the extremity of the west, which at that time would have been Spain. So tradition tells us Paul eventually made his way to Spain and then went back to his former some of his former uh, travels and revisited the places where he'd established churches, but was eventually arrested again, sent to Rome, and this time he was beheaded. So Paul was martyred for his faith, his belief in Jesus. But these chapters, chapters 20 through 28, show not just one of the missionary journeys of Paul, but the personal journey of Paul from being someone who was, finally he he has come full circle from being someone who was a persecutor to being a missionary, and then finally putting himself in the place of Stephen the martyr and recognizing that he was willing to suffer all things for Christ. And as, as he did that, then the message of Christ to Paul was, be of good cheer. Take this good cheer with you. It, it doesn't depend on your circumstances. Can't you see that, Paul? I want to read a quote, and this is quoted in the uh, Meridian Magazine podcast, Come Follow Me podcast, but it's originally from the book about President Nelson's life by Sherry Dew called Insights from a prophet's life. So here's the quote. For the better part of five years, this is about Elder Nelson uh, traveling to try to get the gospel accepted in Eastern Europe. For the better part of five years, Elder Nelson traipsed back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean, seeking meetings with government officials and trying to further the church's interests in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, the German Democratic Republic, Turkey, Estonia, Ukraine, and the Soviet Union. And this didn't count the trips to Washington, D.C. to meet with ambassadors and other dignitaries from the countries he supervised. This was all before the coming down of the Iron Curtain. He was never wanted and rarely welcome. Many government leaders wouldn't even give appointments to a man who professed faith in God. Over time, he was both thwarted in his efforts and helped along the way, treated poorly in some circumstances and graciously in others, spied on by secret police, and later greeted as friends by officials who got to know him, treated suspiciously in some corners while being sought for medical consultation by others. Some trips seemed utterly futile, while on others, doors opened he could never have predicted or planned for. Each of these countries was different, Elder Nelson later reflected, but the message to me was the same. Work your heart out, Russ. Take the risks. Then when you can't go any further, I'll help you. How many parallels can we see in President Nelson's experiences to the experiences of Paul, where some people would accept and others would would reject his message, often violently opposing each other? 
Um, I'll continue the quote. When later asked what he learned from the assignment, to open the countries in Eastern Europe for the preaching of the gospel, particularly in light of the many stops and starts, failed meetings, and ups and downs, Elder Nelson replied simply, The Lord likes effort. He could have said to Moses, I'll meet you halfway, but Moses had to go all the way to the top of Mount Sinai. He required effort from Moses and Joshua and Joseph Smith and from all of the subsequent presidents of the church. He requires effort from bishops and stake relief society presidents and elders quorum presidents. There is always a test. Are you willing to do really hard things? Once you've shown you're willing to do your part, he will help you. And the way that I mean, if you can look at history and see the way that he helped Elder Nelson was he had planted some seeds, and then from one day to the next, after decades of work or years of work, the entire Iron Curtain collapsed almost overnight. So this was a a personal lesson for Elder Nelson, but also uh, a wonderful blessing for the entire world. And it came in the Lord's time that, that Elder Nelson could not have seen. And the message, I believe, to Elder Nelson would have been the same. Be of good cheer. He would have sent, God would have sent him with that same feeling to face his challenges. And as as, uh, Elder Nelson said, it was his attitude that made the difference. The Lord liked effort. The Lord wanted him to try. It didn't matter about his results. The external uh, circumstances were not the measure of how pleased God was with his efforts. Instead, what he wanted was his attitude to be in the right place, his heart to be in the right place, and for him to make the effort and to climb the mountain. And eventually, when he reached the top, then the Lord met him there. Uh, So many important, profound lessons for us in these chapters of Acts. But that, I believe, would be the most important for me personally, which is the Lord doesn't read into our circumstances instead. He stands beside us and says, be of good cheer. And when we can adopt that attitude, then we will make the effort and the Lord will help us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 